You don't need any help, do you? Out of a job? That's it. I see. One of the fallen angels of the Air Force. Well, pardon me if I show no sympathy. While you glamour boys were up in the wild blue yonder, I was down in a tank. Listen, chum. Sometime I'll be glad to hear the story of your war experiences. What I ask you for is a job. You got one? You know anything about building? No, but there's one thing I do know. I know how to learn. Same as I learned that job up there. Hello, and welcome to The Screen Test of Time, the podcast where we watch every movie ever nominated for Best Picture. I'm Susan Raslin. I'm David Daw. And this week, we watched The Best Years of Our Lives, the second of the 1946 nominees. And I have a lot of feelings about this movie, and not a lot of them are positive. <laughs> I want to like this movie. This movie is trying to do good things. This movie, when it is fitfully interesting, I don't know how they got some of this past the Hays Code. Oh, yeah, definitely. We will so get into that because there is some, there is some unquestionable adultery light in this that goes not only unpunished, but kind of rewarded, but also justifiably <laughs> from a personal moral standpoint i think it's justifiable <laughs> not from the hayes code standpoint yeah nikki watched this with me i have to do my wife now it's a bit my wife nikki <laughs> and she was talking because she's only watched good movies with me generally speaking the occasional bad one but this is the first bad one she's watched in a while and she brought up the howard hawks quote about how a great movie is three good scenes and no bad ones and she's like this movie forgot the no bad ones part yes <laughs> this movie is three great scenes and then two fucking hours of a bunch of other stuff and i'm so tired <laughs> i think that's a pretty solid assessment i guess we should talk about what this movie is i don't think we need to go throughout the whole plot but maybe give like the overview of the three intertwining plots yeah we start out with these three guys who are all together going home from world war ii they've been in various branches of the military i'll pick Homer, as the one that I'm going to start with, <laughs> Homer is a young guy, probably in his early 20s. He was in the Navy and he lost both of his hands and part of his forearms in an accident. He has been outfitted with prosthetic hooks, which he's actually quite capable with. And they trained him as well as giving him these hooks. He goes home to his parents and to his best girl who he had plans to marry before the war. The major conflict that he has in this movie is feeling like because of his disability that he shouldn't marry this girl, that she deserves a quote unquote better life with somebody who doesn't have a disability. His storyline and the things that he runs into in this film are the greatest source of pathos for me. He is the best of the three plot lines of the film, I think. He is played by Harold Russell, who actually was not a professional actor. He was an American veteran who was injured in the war, and so he genuinely had this disability, which makes a lot of sense because he is extremely capable 
with his prosthetics in a way that I mean, we have actors who do all of this like deep method shit, but it feels natural and lived in. Obviously, he runs into some people who are like, no, no, everything's fine. You don't have to worry. You're not a burden. We'll take care of you, which is his parents, which frustrates him. Mm -hmm. And then people who are total assholes to him about it and who stare at him, which also frustrates him. And I think that his experience and his playing of disability feels very genuine because there's a lot of internalized ableism where he feels like he is less than he was when he went away to war and a lot of outward frustration with other people's ableism and i think that that's a pretty genuine experience of having a disability i mean i have a neurodivergency where like i will beat myself up about it but god forbid that anybody else do (laughs) yeah Eventually, he has this incredibly beautiful scene with Wilma, who was slash is his fiance, where she comes over to talk to him because she's seen him walk by her house and then chicken out of going in and talking to her. And he shows her what it's like for him to go to bed, where he has figured out how to get his harness off and how to wriggle into his pajama top, but he can't button it. And he can't close the door to the bedroom because if something happens in the night, then he won't be able to get into his harness with the hooks and open the door. And she is doing some incredible acting because it really feels genuine that she's like, this doesn't bother me. I love you and I'm happy to be here and be the person who opens the door if you need it. (laughs) But that otherwise, this is not a problem. The dialogue in this film across the board is so clunky that the best acting happens when people don't have to talk. (laughs) 100%. From how much we are talking about Homer, you may get the impression that this is a good movie. And unfortunately, everything we've just described is maybe 15 minutes of a two-hour and 52-minute film. His story, while being, I think, the most compelling, is the one that takes up the least amount of time. But... Both Kathy O'Donnell, who plays Wilma, and Harold Russell, who plays Homer, are doing some really heavy lifting as far as acting is concerned. Kathy O'Donnell is able to even work around how clunky the dialogue is, and Harold Russell not being a professional actor. Whenever he has to say some of these ludicrous lines, a lot of times it takes him out of the scene. But this particular scene is actually really compelling and really well done, even for some extremely weird and poorly written dialogue. Anyway, they end up getting married and that's the end of the movie for them. Then there's just a huge drop down in quality for both of our other two plot lines. And I'm (laughs) trying to think which one is the next best one. And I think it's Fred because Fred finishes strong after a long, boring streak. Whereas Al starts strong and then his plotline just kind of peters out. Yeah, that's it. let's go with Fred next. Fred is sort of the second level. And Fred at least has this, like, <laughs> Fred has kind of a, a noir film plotline <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> with his femme fatale, money-grubbing, gold-digger wife that he knew for, like, ten minutes before they got married, before he got shipped off. <laughs> Yeah, so Fred is our generic handsome boy, and he was in the Air Force. And he comes back, and 
has probably the just worst experience in terms of just people treating veterans like shit of our three leads. He comes back and gets essentially his same old job as a soda jerk in a pharmacy because, you know, what applicable skills did you learn being an Air Force pilot? (laughs) Right. (laughs) And he chafes at that job, chafes at how little respect and how little money he makes, loses that job because a wild-ass proto-maga fascist bullshit asshole comes in and gives Homer shit, and he decks the dude, and the dude flies like 15 feet, and you're like, yeah, he should have punched him that hard. (laughs) Right, and the guy's about to punch Homer. Mm -hmm. After telling Homer that it's a real disappointment that he lost his hands for no reason because we should have sided with the fascists and not with the allies in World War II, <laughs> which somehow also would have kept us out of the war, question mark? The thing that makes it disturbing and actually kind of lived in instead of this bizarre straw man is how much the dude repeats, just look at the facts, just look at the facts. And you're like, what facts? At some point he says, I do my own research. Right. Which which is fucking QAnon shit, man. Yup. <laughs> so yeah, he is like a QAnon guy and Fred decks him in Fred's kind of best moment of the movie. And loses this job, which is the last straw for his romance plotline. Oh, well, wait. He decks him and the guy flies 15 feet into a glass case full of cosmetics, the whole of which shatters. It's kind of amazing. (laughs) Yeah. But having lost this job, he also loses his terrible wife, which has been the lion's share of his plot and kind of drags. Because she's so over-the-top terrible. She's been working at a nightclub while he's been gone, which isn't terrible, but the movie codes as just like, oh, you already know you're in trouble, buddy. There's definitely an implication that she has been working at a nightclub and that has led to her having various sugar daddies. Yes. It is shocking how much the movie gets away with implying that, even under the Hayes Code. But it's never directly stated. She mostly just complains that Fred doesn't make enough money. Meanwhile, the daughter of our third lead, Peggy, met him one night and saw him have a terrible PTSD nightmare, which is kind of one of the best parts of the movie, and immediately falls in love with him, immediately kind of nosy neighbors her way into meeting his wife, immediately figures out his wife is terrible, and then goes to her parents and is like, I'm going to break up that marriage and marry him. And everybody's like, no, 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 you can't do that. You can't do that, right? You can't do that. (laughs) But then by the end of the film, because the terrible wife has left him at Homer's wedding, the two of them kind of reconcile and it's implied they're going to get together, even though they don't actually get together because the Hayes Code. I mean, they fully make out, though. That is true. That is one of the things that is sort of amazing. I did also leave out the, like, moving end of Fred's plotline, which is he's going to leave town because life is so shit for him here. He's just going to go away and find somewhere else to live and then goes out while he's waiting for his flight to look at the aircraft boneyard at this airport and goes like, wow, this is a metaphor for a lot, huh? And gets up into the cockpit of one of the planes 
where the work crew boss goes like, hey, who the hell are you and why are you in one of the planes I'm going to disassemble? And he goes like, well, I was in the army. And the guy's like, I don't want your sob story. I was in the army, too. And he's like, well, I don't want your sob story. Anyway, <laughs> do you like need somebody? <laughs> That's true. They actually do this. <laughs> I hadn't really thought about how it's very tit for tat, where he's like, look, I just want a fucking job. Yeah. And goes like, hey, I want a job disassembling this stuff. Do you need anybody? And he gets a job that way and stays in town to be at Homer's wedding. And then our last plot line, and is kind of the least successful, because on paper it ought to be the most successful and it just doesn't work, is Frederick March as Al Stevenson, a family man who was in the army, was a platoon sergeant, comes back, has a beautiful wife and kids, has a job waiting for him, and is a miserable drunk for the entire rest of the movie. Yes. Because he just cannot adjust back to civilian life. The problem with that is it doesn't really go anywhere. And I think this is a Hayes Code problem, because I think because of the Hayes Code, it can never really be explicit that he's an alcoholic and that's his problem. Right. No one ever says it. He's just still drinking at the end of the film at Homer's wedding. I thought at Homer's wedding he's drinking the punch that they made for the kids, because he's like, here, you can taste it, it's fine. Or was that just bullshit? (laughs) I thought it was bullshit because I thought he was saying something about like wanting it to be stronger. And does anybody have something to make it stronger? But it's kind of up in the air if he is adjusting finally or not. His job at the bank ought to make him the most interesting character because his job is to approve loans under um, the the... Uh, GI Bill. Thank you. Yeah. Um, under the GI Bill, I was like the VA Act. No, that's not it. The GI Bill, and you think like, oh, this is going to be a window into the story of a lot of different veterans, and let us see just all the different ways veterans adjust, and that's going to be really interesting and a really interesting thing to be fueling is alcoholism. There's one scene with it. It's pretty good. It's kind of the best part of his plot line, and then it's just kind of dropped entirely. The bank yells at him for approving a loan for a farmer with no collateral. And he gets drunk at this bank party and talks shit about how they're all stingy assholes. And there are no real repercussions for that. Yeah, like the guy seems to still get the loan. And Al seems to still have a job at the end of the movie. And really all of the interesting work being done in that plotline is being done by Myrna Loy as his wife, who is working around his alcoholism and working around him not being able to really adjust to civilian life and doing all of that with absolutely no lines that let her do that because the Hayes Code is like, no, 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 no. And very little screen time. Really, Myrna Loy's major work in this film is having her name on the poster so people went to see the movie. And it's argued that that is a lot of Frederick March's work too. And Frederick March is giving a very, very good performance because he's an extremely likable actor playing someone who is really not very likable. You're like, what is this guy's problem? He's got everything that these other two guys could ever want. He didn't get physically injured. He came home to a loving wife and children. 
and a really good paying job. And his only issue, only, quote unquote, is that he obviously has PTSD. But we can't delve into that for whatever reason. Right, exactly. And it's weird, too, right? Because Fred has obvious flashbacks. Like, there's definitely an exploration of PTSD in some capacity. Whereas with Fred, it's just like he's become this complete misanthropic asshole. And he's still making it work where you're like, okay, whatever it was that happened to him, I do feel bad because he is unable to enjoy what is arguably a pretty good life. That takes some skill, but... He's pushing up really hard against me just not liking him. <laughs> I think that's really fair. I think that if this movie was just less boring, we could have gotten rid of a generation of boomer therapy because Frederick March is so the prototypical post-war emotionally closed off dad. Or we could have started a generation of... of Actually going to therapy. Greatest generation therapy. <laughs> <laughs> right. I'm not totally sure he has PTSD exactly. His problem seems to be that he very clearly is kind of chafed by the fact that no one in civilian life really understands what the hell happened to him over there. And yet at the same time feels like, well, there is absolutely no point in telling my wife and children about it. There is no point in going to my 12-year-old son and going like, you don't understand what war is. His 12-year-old son, who, by the way, entirely disappears after the first 45 minutes of the movie. Like, we never see him again, not even at the wedding. The, the son seems to only exist to say he's a pacifist because atomic war would be extremely bad. And Frederick March to be like, uh, d dear God, the new generation will ruin us all. And you're like, I, what? <laughs> yeah, he has this one scene where he's like, we're learning about atomic war at school and how it sucks. And Frederick March is like, great, great, great. Where's the booze? And then he's just gone. <laughs> like, I think he has one more scene in the, in the kitchen where he's like, I have to go to school. And then apparently just never comes back from school. <laughs> So yeah, that's everybody in this. They all meet up in various ways throughout the film so that ostensibly their stories tie together. I mean, obviously Al and Fred's story ties together because Fred gets involved with Al's daughter and then Homer just occasionally is around. They just occasionally see Homer. So the most frustrating thing to me about this film is that the tone of it and the directing of it and the dialogue feels like an educational film strip like you're waiting at any moment for the narrator to break it and say don't marry someone that you met while you were on leave and have only known for a few days because you never know they might be a terrible gold digger <laughs> or your husband may come back from the war changed <laughs> Yeah, I don't I don't know. On a certain level, I think that's kind of the best thing about this movie is how clearly it is an instruction booklet for post-war vets. Except it doesn't have instructions. I It's the setup with none of the like and here is what you should do, except maybe in the case of Wilma, right? I think in all well, no, not really in Owls. In both Fred's and Homer's, I do think that it has this instructional setup, and then it really does have sort of a catharsis that explains, you're going to go through some really rough shit, but you're going to make it out the other side and be okay. The problem is, it just middles for so goddamn long. 
the first 20 minutes are really clearly instructional. All this file footage of like, your town's gonna look different. It's all gonna feel different, but that's okay. And then when you get into the movie part, the movie part is super boring. It all just kind of drags. It's a really mediocre soap opera until the last 20 minutes. Like, really, until Homer has the big catharsis scene with Wilma. Nothing much really happens for a long-ass time. Not even in a way where you really feel their pain. Just in a way where you're like, oh, we're doing this again. Okay, now we're following Al again, I guess. That's what I'm saying about Al's plotline at the bank, is I wish it had more of a quality of a bunch of little vignettes about post-war life instead of trying to go into this romantic drama that it honestly isn't very good at for a long time. Like, I would love more stories of veterans trying to adjust to post-war life through Al than another scene of Fred's wife being terrible. Yeah. Like, another scene of Myrna Loy trying to go, oh, Al, be patient with the children. And you're like, okay, great. There's so much time wasted on what this movie feels like it's got to do to be a 1940s movie and not an instructional film that I kind of wish it was just an instructional film. Yeah, I I can see that argument. Mine is that an instructional film that's nearly three hours long becomes incredibly boring and it feels weirdly didactic without ever actually getting to the part of it that is explanatory, I guess. To be clear, whichever one of us is right about what half of this movie should stick around, it should be a tight 80 minutes. Oh, yeah. (laughs) I'm not arguing that we should fill up 172 minutes of like, here's what a hot dog stand is. (laughs) Take the 40 minutes that's already that and then fill it in with a couple of other small stories and really cut Fred and Peggy stuff down to the bone. I think really it's the Fred and Peggy stuff where that tone is so frustrating because his story doesn't have anything instructional in it. It's just like he has one rough break after another until he has two things at the end where he comes out of it. His old job sucks. He's not getting paid as well as he was in the Army Air Force. His wife is horrible. He's fallen in love with this girl who is a decent human being, but he's married to, again, his horrible, horrible wife. Did we mention she's horrible? And then it's like, run away from your problems and you'll stumble across a better job and then your wife will leave you and you'll get to be with the nice girl. That's a story. That's a narrative. It's not, how do I reintegrate and how do my friends and family best support me in that integration, which is what you get from Homer and which is what they're trying to do with Al. I mean, basically, Myrna Loy's instruction as the supportive wife is just take all of his shit until maybe he gets better. (laughs) I think my argument is that that ending sequence at the aircraft boneyard with Fred would operate a lot better if it was a capstone to a movie that had a lot more stories of veterans in it, where it would feel more like what I think it's intended to be, which is, listen, they really might treat you like shit. It may be really hard to adjust, but eventually if you keep at it, you're going to find something. You're going to find a way to fit back into civilian life in a way that, because the cinematography from Greg Toland, all-star, 
We love him. We have no choice but to stand. <laughs> because Greg Toland does so good with that sequence, it still kind of works. You know what is intended to be happening there. But I think if it was the capstone of a bunch of stories, it would feel like, and even Fred will one day find something, will find a way to fit back into civilian life instead of what it feels like, which is now we can go back and make out with Peggy. Now that plot line can be done. The scene where he is in the airplane cockpit is actually the greatest part of Fred's story because there's no dialogue. One, (laughs) Dana Andrews is doing some really incredible acting without having to speak. Tolan's cinematography is incredible. The sound editing is really, really good there. Yeah. And the sound design, that's great and all. But yeah, I think actually maybe the issue is not so much that most of the movie has this instructional tone and it's inappropriate in certain places. And maybe it would be better if it didn't have that instructional tone at all. So much as that it clashes really, really hard particularly in Fred's story. This educational film strip dialogue does not work for his story. (laughs) I do think the dialogue is, like you say, just pretty bad across the board. And I do get what you're saying. That first scene where they all meet on the aircraft flying back to, what's it called, Boone City? Yes. This fake town that they live in. That is definitely the Midwest and not at all Southern California. Yes. (laughs) Also totally doesn't need to be a fictional city because it's just Cincinnati and like, that's fine. I don't understand why it can't be Cincinnati, but whatever. Or just LA. It looks like LA. Just let it be LA. (laughs) In that first scene where they're sort of all introducing what their character games are. And you have Homer being really good natured about having lost his hands in this tragic senseless accident you're like oh god this is going to be one of those movies where all the veterans talk about how lucky they are all the fucking time and like no it's not that thank god that is very clearly a front homer is putting up to try and not really process what has happened to him Mm. i do think that there is this disconnect here between dialogue that really is trying to put a smiling face on a really disturbing and difficult period of time for a lot of people and a plot line that is just going as hard as the Hayes Code lets them about how these people's lives are fucking broken. (laughs) I kind of like that disconnect and think there is something genuinely educational in it. And I wish the movie kind of leaned into it instead of leaning into the melodrama. But I do also think it often doesn't work. And that is a problem. I mean, I think that you can absolutely have that disconnect with better written dialogue. Mm -hmm. When Wilma says to Homer, I love you and I'll never leave you. It's very... There are more situationally specific things that could be said there. (laughs) Yeah. And that was one that really stuck out to me, is that feeling that so much of the writing this is just very vague cliche, and not even situationally specific very vague cliche, of like, thank you for your service, and people being like, oh, it's nice for you to say that, but what are you actually doing for us? (laughs) 
Yeah, I just think that you can have the disconnect between people putting on a a certain face and saying things that are superficially positive while things are not good for people without making it just bad dialogue. (laughs) Who wrote this movie? Uh, Robert E. Sherwood. He's apparently mostly a playwright? Yeah, it looks like it. And was a a member of the Algonquin Roundtable, which... I guess that's where I know his name from. Oh, right. He was, uh, there's a whole thing about him and uh, Dorothy Parker and the, he is like one of the reasons she moved out to Hollywood. Anyway, none of that has anything to do with this movie. I just read a biography of Dorothy Parker for a thing I was trying to write like 10 years ago. We should rate this movie because I think we've sort of said all there is to say. I'm going to give it a three. Oh, I'm going to go higher than that. Um, I'm, But not much, because it's not a five, for sure. It is not more good than bad. Um, I, no, I th- I, like, my heart says four for some reason. I really understand three. I don't have any actual logical argument for a four. My Here's my argument for a four, Susan. Come on! <laughs> Come on! I mean... Uh, no, I'm <laughs> not going to come on. <sighs> yeah. Uh, right. The director for this was the director for Mrs. Miniver, which I find really fascinating. And also Doddsworth. Oh. Yeah, I don't like this guy's direction at all. Yeah, that actually, I'm now fine with a three because I now think Myrna Loy taking all of Frederick March's shit is maybe actually the intended read. Yeah. If he directed Doddsworth. Yeah, I mean, his whole thing is that women are long suffering and shouldn't actually have any feelings and if they do then they're essentially horrible harpies (laughs) yeah it gives me a lot more respect for both Myrna Loy and Teresa Wright who plays Peggy for really kind of getting some subversive quasi-feminist reads in there on their characters because apparently they had even less to work with than I thought on that score but yeah, I'm I'm fine with a three. Don't watch this movie. No, tragically don't. I wish I could recommend it. The course of history legitimately would be different if I could recommend this film. But no. Yeah, and it, you know what's really frustrating about it is that it was wildly praised for confronting this difficult situation in American history with so many citizens coming back and being largely changed by this experience of war and in a number of ways negatively impacted by it and us not being prepared to support them. Um, A thing that continues, frankly, to this day. But it doesn't. It seems that the way that it confronts it is like, just suck it up and it'll get better. (laughs) Yeah, I think without the, like, specific screen test of time rubric, I do think this movie is, like, closer to a four or a five. Because for 1946, like, if you compare this to the last three, like, home front movies we've watched that were so rah-rah about the war and so cavalier and so it's all gonna be okay, I do think this is confronting things way more, but, like... I don't know, every fucking movie about Vietnam is going to blow this out of the water in terms of dealing with these issues. Right, right, exactly. (laughs) Yeah, that's definitely true. I would say, though, a little interesting historical tidbit about this film. 
Harold Russell, who plays Homer, and again, not a professional actor, was nominated for Best Supporting Actor. And the Academy was like, there is no way that this guy is going to win. He's not a professional actor. He is up against Charles Coburn and Claude Rains. But we got to give the guy something because he's doing this really important thing by representing wounded veterans. So they created a special award for him that was an honorary award for, quote, bringing hope and courage to his fellow veterans through his appearance in the best years of our lives, end quote. And then he fucking won Best Supporting Actor, (laughs) (laughs) which that makes me kind of happy. Like, good on the Academy, both for feeling like, well, we got to give the guy something and for ending up voting for him for Best Supporting Actor in the end anyway. Yeah, this basically sweeps the Academy. And of everything that wins for it, that is definitely the most deserved win. Frederick March, I don't think, should be winning Best Actor for this. He's just barely okay. Like you say, he's sort of here so that you can put Frederick March's name in the middle of the poster. Right. Uh, Editing... I mean, no, this this movie is too long. Yeah. Like, I get that that's not the only part of editing, but like, maybe say some of these scenes shouldn't be here, editor. <laughs> yeah. I would be shocked if best motion picture and best director end up being what should win here. We haven't split off best cinematography yet, have we? As a separate award, or else it's batshit nuts that it wasn't nominated for that. We have... There's actually two cinematography awards at this point for black and white and for color. That's insane. Yeah, it wasn't nominated for best cinematography, which is wild. Yeah. Screenplay, not that good. As we've said, the dialogue is quite bad. Um, Directing is bleh. All the things that you think are good about the directing or the cinematography is very good. Yeah. I don't think this movie is the across the board slam dunk the Academy finds it to be. And I think it finds it to be that because of how this movie deals with social issues. From a 1946 standpoint, I get it. But we can also watch movies that the Hays Code doesn't tie down now. So it just barely deals with social issues in a sort of objective way compared to movies that will cover all this later. Yeah. That's that. Uh, What do we got next? Next week is The Yearling, directed by Clarence Brown, who went to my alma mater and for whom our drama department is named. (laughs) Okay. And it stars Gregory Peck. So that's cool. And otherwise, I don't know anything about it. (laughs) That seems fair. The poster seems terrible, so we're okay on that. It's a little boy holding a deer? A yearling. A little a little fawn. Okay. I don't actually know what that is. Uh, I am from Tennessee, but <laughs> I don't necessarily know what a yearling is. I don't think I could tell you, like, the technical definition. I just know it's like a little deer. I, I think I exclusively know that from things that look like this poster, you know? Yeah, I know that it's based on a book that was always for sale at the elementary school book fair that interested me in no way. So I'm not super hopeful, I'll be honest. I thought about this poster for three more seconds and went like, oh, this is a the Dear Tragically Dies movie, isn't it? And skipped down to the last paragraph of the plot. And I was like, oh, yep, that's exactly what this movie is. Oh, man, spoiler alert. 
Spoiler alert for the most obvious version of what this movie from almost 80 years ago would be. Apologies. I know everybody now has no reason to listen to next week's episode because you were just waiting for the plot of the yearling to finally be relayed to you. Please stick with us. I beg your forgiveness. But yes, the deer tragically dies at the end. Cool. So tune in next week. Not to find out if the deer tragically dies at the end, because you know now, but to know whether or not it is a good movie despite that. Yes. And until then... This had promise. This was a movie it shouldn't have been. It should have been an educational film strip, or it should actually, or it should have been more of a movie. It kind of cut the difference, and that was a problem. Absolutely. Bye, everybody. (laughs) Bye. Good night, darling. Sleep well. Good night, Mama.